0: love when we can talk to the muses and do a muses will rock you episode it is literally my favorite thing
1: muses will rock you grunge edition
0: yes so we sat down with Shanti and Lynx again and did a crossover episode talking about girl grunge specifically the riot girl movement which I'm surprised was not on my radar considering I, I do consider myself a fan of grunge um but it was really awesome. You'll hear it in more in the interview, not interview, in the episode. But it's amazing, like how in the Riot Girl movement, they were all just really good friends. And it wasn't mm-hmm. about competition and being the best band ever, which I feel like is, you know, always pushed by the media to be the case. Like they were just really good friends and just wanted to make music. Yep. I have so. no
1: additional comments so that that was pretty much what happened.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, without further and, Oh god.
1: Oh, I was going to say these stories are a, a interesting mix of depressing and hilarious. So, enjoy.
0: Yes. Yes, <laughs> which is often the case of my life that you just described. Depressing <laughs> and hilarious. Isn't but, that
1: everyone's life?
0: Well, especially after 2020, I mean Everything's Wait. depressing and hilarious after a pandemic.
1: <laughs> We're in that weird re entry phase right now where no one knows what to think about anything. So, yes. Uh, on that note, I'm
0: Leah. And I'm Beth And this is Shiwaraqi. Where are they getting a dump in a CPS executive meeting? No. <laughs> bitch, don't touch my thermostat. the <laughs> ghost be like, pull up before I haul you, let me turn down the thermostat. Who is <laughs> <Please>, this man? <laughs> Page one guys this is she will rock
1: you
2: welcome back to another muses and she will rock you crossover one of my favorite episodes of all time to do thanks so much for coming back leah and beth ann yeah thanks for hitting us up for another one of these yeah got
1: to it a little faster this time than last time <laughs>
2: That's right. always for people who are listening and maybe are new um, and they went over to your feed. What would they find over at She Will Rock You? Uh, We are very similar to muses in
1: that we each take turns presenting a different topic each week, but we... Don't just stick to the ladies. we highlight ladies from all genres, but we also highlight our favorite trash children, as we've started to call yes. them, <laughs> your favorite terrorizing bands. Um, in my case, Beth Ann covers some more civilized people, but <laughs> <laughs> I cover the motley crews of the world. Um, and we we release bi-weekly and lots of artist interviews intermixed between those bi-weekly episodes as well. So come check us out on it discovered a lot of new artists
3: because of you guys oh that's awesome
1: thanks
3: yeah that always makes me happy the diversive mix you know you got the angels and the devils of rock and roll going on there
1: yeah we're I'm doing Oasis next so you want to talk about (laughs) crazy bands (laughs) oh there's a lot to work with there yes I don't know how they haven't murdered each other yet honestly
2: for real oh well I can't wait for that one Anything else that you're particularly proud of? I I don't know. I feel like every time I go to your Instagram, you're like, something special is coming soon. So I'm always like, what is it? But yeah, any episodes that you'd want to direct people to or just like hop in and choose your own adventure? Choose your own
1: adventure. I Mm -hmm. think a good place to start. Everyone seems to like our Dolly episode a lot. Yeah. That seems to be a popular one. Dolly and Queen. And... Amy Winehouse, that was a good recent one that Beth Ann did. Yeah. That's been pretty
0: I'm still listening to her album. Like cuz I like to listen to music the artists while I'm researching them, but like I forgot how good Back to Black is. It yeah. is astounding. So, but her story is so important. I really considered it a, a good lesson for us to remember.
2: Yeah, I recently covered Virginia Grohl, so Dave Grohl's mom's book where she interviews some rock moms and Mm -hmm. she interviewed Amy Winehouse's mother for it. But I knew that you guys had just released your Amy Winehouse episode and I was like, you know what, if anybody wants to really hear like a detailed account and version of that, you should just go listen to your episode. Well done. Thank you. All right. What are we talking about today? Yeah, I'm so excited for this. I know, I think I might be the only
3: one who kind of like really grew up obsessed with these women and like they were my idols growing up. So thanks for indulging me. And I think I was the one who kind of was like, hey, how about we talk about like the women of the Riot Girl
0: grunge? Oh, no, please. This was awesome because I think grunge is on my radar, but the Riot Girl movement surprisingly was not. So I enjoyed the deep dive of this. Yeah, I think a lot of people
3: don't really know about these bands and how much of an impact they had at the time as well. So I'm glad that we're covering four bands that aren't as massive as some of the other ones that people know, but really uh, were instrumental in the birth of the rise of, you know, the Riot Girls. What is the Riot Girl movement, Lynx? Well, see, this is an interesting thing because not all of these bands are technically considered riot girl or technically considered grunge. They kind of all kind of formed together, though, where in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a punk feminist movement and they kind of all banded together and they created scenes and were really trying to make a space, a safe space for women in music. And all of these bands came from that in one way or another is that where women to the front came from yeah girls to the front absolutely that was kathleen Hanna would shout that when bikini kill was playing and yeah trying to make it a a safe space for women to be able to enjoy music the way
2: that men have forever definitely hi Well, I'll get started first, uh, because as you said, late 80s, early 90s. We're going to start in 1987. I got my information from a really wonderful article in The Current written by Andrea Swenson, and she wrote it back in 2020. So it's fairly recent and up to date. And then I peppered it in with a little bit of Wikipedia, of course. Yes, of course you have to. So you were talking about grunge music and the Riot Girl movement. Well, I'm going to be talking about Babes in Toyland, who are three-piece, a trio from Minneapolis, who were foundational to the grunge music scene and inspirational to a generation of Riot Girls. Has anybody heard of this band or listened to them much? Because I'll be honest with you and tell you that it was
0: new to me. I've heard of them, but I never listened to them unfortunately. Grunge is not
1: my go-to genre, so all of these were new
2: to me. <laughs> I feel like I missed out, and I've, I think I've said this to you before, Links, on like a past episode where maybe it was growing up with brothers. Maybe it was like, I feel like I missed out on this when I was young, and I can see how it could have been foundational and inspirational to young women discovering music and I Mm -hmm. wish that I would have got been able to get into it uh at a little bit of a younger age but I didn't so I guess there's no time like the present and we're never too old but it has a lot to do with also like even for me growing up I did know of
3: these bands but they weren't the ones that were played constantly on MTV or much music like you had to watch at like I would have to watch it after 10 p.m. for some of these people to come on and they come on a show called like the wedge or the new music here and it was like you know the stuff that isn't mainstream basically but I think that's also an, like, an unfortunate thing where you have these people controlling what's put out there and unfortunately the women's fronted women fronted music just mm-hmm. wasn't what they decided to put forward so a lot of people did miss it and we didn't have the internet and things back then either so you know you really had to accidentally stumble
1: upon it or like have someone kind of show it to you also I think they like the grunge phase burned hot and fast like yeah. my band came in way too late for the scene like that's why they didn't go anywhere yeah
0: yeah it like yeah, immediately true. transitioned into something else like, stayed around for a couple years, and then it, like, branched off into, you know, hardcore, all- mainstream alternative, more punk, you know. In
2: 1987, the band's lead singer and guitar player, Kat Bjelland moved from San Francisco to Minneapolis because she wanted to be a part of a new scene. I guess the scene in San Francisco in 1987 was... Thumbs down, mm-hmm. fart noise. So <laughs> she wanted to be a part of a new scene. It didn't take her long to become fully involved in the tight-knit rock scene, as it was called, but we know it's grunge scene. She became friends with Lori Barbero, and it was her idea that Lori begin playing the drums now i love when bands start and like at least one of the players doesn't play an instrument yes and one of the members is just like look i really like you i think that we should start a band oh you don't know how to play an instrument no problem we need a drummer so just just i feel like that's what punk's all about
1: it's true Punk's about yeah, is this yeah. a theme in these bands? Because I really is
0: that um, oh, yeah, and it's always <laughs> it either drums or bass because guitar is the, just like that's the, the one area. Yeah, you need you need regulated to a bass or a drum.
2: Exactly, and I don't know if that happens as much anymore. With you know, you have, if, I I feel like the younger you are, the easier it is for you to pick up any instrument. Anyways, I feel like maybe today mm-hmm. people are a little bit more self conscious. Like, kind of back then, maybe they weren't as aware of, like, you have to be this. You Like, they just fucking go for it. And I really respect that with this punk and grunge scene at the time. So, apparently they had incredible chemistry. And, of course, drums are vital to a band. So, we have a guitar player, we have a drummer. Now, as with any bands that only have two members, they needed to recruit some other band members to round out the sound. I personally love a duo, but I also understand that we got to get some bass in there. So they tried a few different lineups, including briefly playing with a former bandmate of Cats, who happened to be Courtney Love. But it ended up being the bass player, Michelle Leon, who would be added to their band. They released their debut album "Spanking Machine" on the Twin Tone (laughs) Records label in 1990.
0: That is the best name for an album.
2: Yeah, and I feel like if you talk to Pleasant Gaiman and like previous bands that she used to be in or albums that they released, Mm -hmm. it always had some kind of sense of humor to it. It also it always had a little bit of a "fuck you" energy to it.
0: Yeah. Mm Oh, yeah, absolutely. All these bands have, like, great song titles as well. and That's a punk scene, man. They are just like, let me think of a title that will both attract the right people and get under the skin of the wrong people. It's great. It's, it's poetry. Yeah. It's almost poetry. <laughs> almost. I'm going to
2: quote the article that I read. So, like I said, it's from The Current, but Cat had... Quoted or Kat had given a quote to The Current back in 2019, which is used in this article again. And she said, I wanted musicians who didn't know how to play very well. So then you could create a sound together. So Hmm, that makes sense. That's fair. Yeah. You don't come in with this all like with the style already. You're Mm -hmm. moldable. You learn together. You develop who you are together. And then Andrea Swenson, the writer of this article, She describes the band like this. She says, The sound they made was raw and unapologetically angry. They became experts at toying with dynamics and emotions, contrasting Kat's screams with sing-songy melodies and Lori's hilarious between-song banter. So I like when you read an article written by someone who really sounds like a fan who took the time to listen to this music. And it's, I'm guessing, just based on her name, uh, making an assumption that uh, it's a woman who wrote this article. And so maybe she grew up feeling inspired by this band to be a rock writer, you know, kind of a male dominated field as well.
0: Definitely.
2: So it didn't take Babes in Toyland long before Tim Carr, an A&R guy, helped them sign to Warner Brothers. And from there, the band was on a hot circuit festivals like Lollapalooza. They toured with My Bloody Valentine, Rage Against the Machine, and Primus, to name a few. Um, and it was like during one of these weeks that they were either like on the cover of Entertainment Weekly that actually Kurt Cobain was found dead in his home so as we're as we had already mentioned before it seems like grunge really had a short lived yeah time mm-hmm. and at first i didn't even put into my notes that those dates lined up but if we're talking about how short maybe this time period was maybe that does play a factor here that for sure yeah that nirvana was no more as well Who knows, Mm -hmm. maybe they could have extended the life cycle of grunge a little bit longer had Kurt stayed alive. I've never really put too much thought into it, but there we go. Very true.
0: That's a good insight.
2: Yeah. They were on the cover of Entertainment Weekly, and they even got on an episode of Beavis and Butthead, where Beavis and Butthead were watching them perform. You know how they're watching TV and like music uh, pops up and they kind of react to it? and cat might be saying um liar or she might be saying bruise violet she might be saying violet but beavis is going liar 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 or no he's going fire 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 (laughs) and butthead is going uh, (laughs) she's saying liar so i watched that clip it was online (laughs) (laughs) i love your impression (laughs) And they've also been referenced in an episode of Roseanne. So I, I didn't look up the clip for that one, but I can imagine that one of the younger girls in Roseanne probably was really feeling this band, maybe, you know, playing into her teenage ang- mm-hmm. angst or something. And they were probably referenced in that manner is how I would guess. So... After this, more all-women punk rock bands began to form, and many of them have cited Babes in Toyland as a major influence. I thought that this was pretty cool. On April 8th, 1994, Babes in Toyland played a benefit show for Rock Against Domestic Violence with the year's Seven Year Bitch and Jack Off Jill in Miami at the Cameo Theater. Yeah.
0: I love that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The band recorded their last album in 1995 and have gotten together from time to time since then. If you were really curious and like the ins and outs and any kind of like band drama and members leaving for different reasons, like you can look that all up online. But I figured if we're all just doing kind of brief overview, I didn't want to get into the details Mm -hmm. of like they broke up because this person did this and said this. It's like, whatever, bands break up, we're going to move on. So they did a reunion set at the Rock Garden in 2015 with their mid-90s bass player Maureen Herman. But their impact and contribution to rock and roll history is still felt to this day, including in the performances of a young band from their hometown called Bruise Violet, who took their name directly from a Babes in Toyland song. Stephen Thomas Erlewine wrote of the band Babes in Toyland is about as harsh as rock music gets. Guitarist Kate Bieland screams and thrashes her guitar to the gut pounding, throttling beat of bassist Maureen Herman and drummer Lori Barbero. The all female trio offer no escape from their strongly female oriented, but not necessarily feminist rock. So, an interesting take from some probably some white guy, whatever. But. <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen Hanna of Bikini Kill said in a 2010 interview, Babes in Toyland was a band that was hugely important to us and we were like, God, if only we could play awesome shows like Babes in Toyland. Uh, The band has been honored with a star on the outside mural of the Minneapolis nightclub and it recognizes performers who have sold out shows or otherwise demonstrated a huge contribution to culture at this iconic music venue. And that's what I've got on Babes in Toyland. I watched a couple of videos. They are as cool and as badass as everybody is making them out to be. And I'm happy that I got to learn about them again a little bit late, but... I late than ever.
3: remember a lot of discussion back then and with Bruce Violet because you have this Courtney Love connection already. And, of course, Hole had a big song with Violet. And then they came out with Bruise Violet. And Kat and Courtney have a similar look. They did like the baby doll dresses, the bleach blonde hair. They had, I mean, they were friends. They had, they were part of the same scene. They really, I remember people p- like pitted them against each other. Mm-hmm. And even in the video, I think for Bruise Violet, they're. Trying to say that they're kind of making out Like Courtney Love is the villain in that And I'm just I wonder if part of The reason that they weren't even more successful Was because it was like Courtney Love took that place And it's like well we have like one grunge There's idol, just not enough room female. for
2: everyone We can only have yeah. one yeah. There's only like yeah. one
1: girl grunge band
2: mm-hmm. How dare we have two
3: Yeah and being like well who came up With the image First, like the baby doll grunge, that like who cares? They both rocked it. They both made incredible music. And before we move on from this one, I wanted to mention Michelle Leon wrote a memoir. I think it's called "I Live Inside." I wrote, I read it um maybe five or so years ago. I can't remember when it was released, but it was fantastic. So if anyone wants a full, like in depth look of like what it was like being in that band and touring and. Being part of that at the time, that uh, is a fantastic book to really dive deep into. Awesome. Thanks. All right. So I'm going to tell you guys about a band called The Gits. So The Gits were more of a punk band than a grunge. They were just a little bit before grunge, but they are kind of instrumental in how punk turned into grunge. And they had this really incredibly dynamic and powerful front woman named Mia Zapata. And I'm going to focus mostly on her, but I'm going to tell you about the rest of the band as well. So Mia was born August 25th, 1965 in Chicago, but she was raised in Louisville, Kentucky. She was always really into music. She picked up her instruments really easily by age nine, she she'd learned how to play both piano and guitar, and she had a love for you know, all the early punk bands and everything, but was also very heavily influenced by blues and R&B, people like Bessie Smith, Billie Holiday, Sam Cooke, and so on. Very often later would get compared to these people. She really took their vocal styles and ran with it. She came from a pretty affluent family, but that lifestyle was never important to her. I have a quote from her dad that says, Mia lived in two different worlds. She lived on two different sides of the street, the straight side on one, with parochial schools and tennis clubs. But when she crossed the street, material things didn't mean anything to her. So in 1984, she enrolled at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Colorado. She was a liberal arts student. It was while she was there that she met the rest of the guys who created the band. So first there's Steve Moriarty. He was the drummer. He grew up in Indiana. He came from a jazz background. But he says by the time he was in college, he really needed to play music that kind of fit his temperament. And that kind of pushed him more into the punk rock scene. And there he met matt dresner who played bass matt grew up in jersey and andrew kessler the guitarist grew up in brooklyn so they both grew up with you know the cbgb punk scene Mm -hmm. going into manhattan to see shows and everything yeah my (laughs) my dream
0: (laughs) i feel that yeah
3: so these guys all lived at a dorm together and they really bonded over their taste in music and they met mia at a bar so Mia was really special. She had this energy unlike anyone else and it left a lot of people intimidated but like also super fascinated by her. They made a documentary about the Gets a couple years ago and in it one of her friends says that Mia when you were around her she just like her presence demanded respect. She was just one of those people
2: Love that. <laughs>
3: But, of course, once you got to know her, you found she was, like, this super loving, loyal, funny, sincere, and shockingly shy person, you know, deep inside. She would play guitar and sing at the dorms in her room, and the guys would overhear her, and they asked if she was interested in joining the band. So this was the fall of 86. The band first called themselves the Sniveling Little Rat-Faced Gits. Ew. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that reminds me of the great mouse detective for some reason
3: I I can see that it's actually a Monty Python reference from a skit oh,
0: That makes sense. it's a really
3: funny skit I don't know if you can find it online but uh, you should if you can because it's, it's a good I mean Monty Python are great but thankfully they ended up shorting that to just the gits because they were still in school and working and everything for the first year They did play shows and, you know, impressed people out there. But it wasn't until 1989 that the band decided to move to Seattle. And it's there that they were really able to focus on their music. So Mia and Andy, the guitarist, they had a strong connection. She call or sorry, he calls her his musical soulmate. And they wrote a lot of the band's music together. Mia's strength was really her voice and her lyrics. And he would write you know, the music for it. They all really immediately fell in love with Seattle and made friends with all the bands in the scene. And the band moved together into a house that they dubbed the Rat House. So the Rat House was a rehearsal space and that soon became a rehearsal space for multiple bands in the Seattle scene, not just them. Mm -hmm. When they moved there, Mia got a job at the Frontier Room. It was this tough dive bar slash greasy spoon place, and she was a waitress there. And the band would come literally every day to get free meals. (laughs) So her job paid for like their house. They got fed. They—that's how they survived, basically. For like at least the first year. Yeah. It took them a few months to find their footing in the music scene and booking shows and all that. But once they played a club called The Vogue, that was really their foot in the door and everyone took notice right away and they were kind of, you know, off to the races. They were really great, really commanding live. Everyone was absolutely captivated by Mia. Tim Summer, he worked for Atlantic Records. Later on, he said Mia was doing something that was unique back then as it is today. This raw pitch brilliant blues singer singing as this charismatic front to a whirlwind of a punk band. So her voice was just so strong and no one was really doing what she was doing at the time. Some of their fans included the women who are going to create Seven Year Bitch. I have a quote from Celine, the singer. She says, we so respected and looked up and admired them. We just thought that they were the shit. So the Gits were really not only an inspiration to them, But Mia was super encouraging, trying to tell them, like, don't just be an audience member. Get up there, do it yourselves. Like, you guys have it in you. Why don't you create a band? And they actually let that band borrow their instruments and the rehearsal space and everything and, you know, helped them grow into their own band as well. So she really cared about getting other people active in the scene as well. Like most in the punk scene, we were just talking about this. The gets were very do it yourself. They weren't going to wait around for a label to find them. They decided they were going to put out a compilation album with the other bands of the Rat House rehearsal space. And yeah, it wasn't just about promoting themselves, it was always about promoting the scene, everyone supporting each other. And as we all know, the Seattle scene at this point was like really killing it. Every mm-hmm. band was fantastic and. They were really getting attention from everywhere else. So one thing I really loved about it is that no one really forgot the others. For instance, there's this great documentary called Hype. And seven-year bitch are in it. And they made sure that the guys who created Hype knew about the Gits. and was like, you have to have the Gits in there if you're making a movie about this scene. Like, you have to. So they were all supportive of one of another, making sure to kind of build each other up together. In 1990 and 1991, they released two EPs, Precious Blood and Second Skin. That's probably their most famous song. Both were released on a small label called Broken Records, R-E-K-I-D-S, which I thought was very <laughs> clever. <laughs> I love that. Broken Records. That's great. Yeah. And in 1992, they released their debut studio album, which was titled Frenching the Bully on CZ Records, which was <clears throat> another Seattle label. So they get they began touring a lot all over the states. They were impressing audiences everywhere, really building a following. In June of 1993, they caught the attention of bigger labels. They sat down with Atlantic Records. They were offered a deal. So that summer, things were like really going well for them. They had nothing but great opportunities ahead. They were playing in L.A. They met the label there. They came back home. Mia was hanging out with her friends, telling them all about the great things that were happening. And then she left. And a couple hours later, the band is calling their friends, being like, Mia didn't come home. Where is she? We can't find her. Everyone's starting to worry. And it got to the point where they called everyone they could think of. And they were like, should we start calling the morgues? And they started calling the morgues, and they found Mia. She was identified by a tattoo of a chicken that she had on her leg. So on July seventh, 1993, her body was discovered about a mile and a half from the bar in the middle of a deserted street.
2: Oh my god.
3: She'd been beaten, raped, and strangled. Oh, no. Yeah, it was just, it was incredibly violent, yeah. violent death.
0: Yeah. She,
3: she was just 27. So, of course, everyone's absolutely shocked and devastated. Her dad and brother talk in the documentary, The Gets" about a wake that they had for her and how shocked and how much it meant to them to see what an impact it had had on the community and how many people knew her and loved her. And they actually had another wake for her that day for like friends and fans. And the admission for it was a single yellow rose, which was Mia's favorite. And her dad and brother were talking about how they got lost on the way to the venue. And then they noticed all these people walking down the streets holding these yellow flowers. And it's like her friends and fans guided them to her memorial, yeah. There's this beautiful, heartbreaking quote from her dad in the film where he says, She was on loan to me, but now she belongs to all of you. Aww. Yeah. So after the shock and devastation obviously came questions. You know, what happened? Who did this? Like, why? Usually with violent crimes like this, it's assumed that the victim knows the perpetrator. So the police began investigating the music scene. A lot of the women mentioned that cops were telling them, like, you can't tell anyone that she was raped. But obviously that really upset them. And they were like, well, we could all be next. Like, you have to let people know so that they can stay safe. Celine from Seven Year Bitch says a whole dark cloud came over everything and just stayed there. So you have all the men in the scene being investigated one by one. Many of them were interrogated. They had to give DNA samples naturally the women in the scene are scared they're being told you know it's probably someone you know it's someone in the scene you don't know who to trust you're at the bar you're looking around you're like it could be anyone a couple weeks after her death the band hired a private investigator to look into it because really no one was satisfied with the police investigation
2: sorry my hand and face gesture was just saying shocking Yeah, the police. Was anyone impressed with any murder investigation in the eighties? Though, like,
0: true. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We weren't catching a lot
1: of killers then. No, exactly.
3: So the band got the money to do this by calling on all of their friends and their friends' bands to play a benefit show or multiple benefit shows all around town. So by now, this is not just news in Seattle, but you know, in the music scene at large. So. This leads to Kathleen Hanna and Joan Jett becoming involved. Joan Jett actually played with the guys in the band, so th- she played the Git songs with them, and they called themselves the Evil Stig, which is Gits Live Backwards. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Other bands that got involved in raising money for the investigation were The Posies, The Presidents of the United States, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden... They all pitched in. They wanted to make sure Mia got justice. They ended up raising about 50,000 um to pay the private investigator, but unfortunately, while they did learn a lot of, you know, people's skeletons in their closet, nothing was really coming up that further helped the murder investigation. So, soon, you know, this devastation and loss turned into fury over the fact that, you know, all these investigations are going nowhere and No one knows if they're still safe or not. So the women in the scene banded together. They felt like they had to do something. And that's when Home Alive was created, which was a nonprofit collective that taught self-defense to women. And they made a lot of money for the organization. They put out a lot of compilations with all the bands that I've mentioned previously. Joan Jett and Kathleen Hanna did a song together called Go Home, which was inspired by Mia's story and the Home Alive movement. In 1994, once again, CZ Records posthumously released the final Gits album, which was called Enter the Conquering Chicken. And this album has a little bit of an eerie vibe to it, obviously, but it's also the subject matter of a couple of the songs. For instance, the final song is called Sign of the Crab, and Mir wrote the lyrics about the idea of being murdered by a stranger. I don't like that. What? Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty chilling. One lyric even says, go ahead and slice me up, spread me all across town, because you know you're the one that won't be found. Oh, no. Yeah.
0: Holy
3: shit. And there's another song on the album called Spear and Magic Helmet, and it's about like a brutal rape. So.
0: Oh! Was that Jarvis?
2: There it is. <laughs> Leave that <laughs> yep. in. I was waiting for it. It was...
0: The timing was... I got chills, though. It was... Chills. Chilling. Yeah. Very
3: chilling. After three years with the PI, uh, they turned up nothing, and they ended the investigation. The police had come up with nothing as well. Years and years pass. So finally, a break comes in the case in 2003. A man named Jesus Makita he was arrested for burglary and domestic abuse the year previous 2002 and his dna was entered into codis Mm. so a saliva sample had been found on mia's body and kept in cold storage because the technology for this had not been developed yet and thankfully because this guy was now put into codis they found a match So Mesquita had a long history of domestic abuse, assault, and battery. He even had a report of indecent exposure on file in Seattle two weeks previous of Mia's murder. He was put on trial for Mia's death. He was convicted in 2004 and received 36 years. He has always maintained his innocence, so no one has gotten the full story, but is believed that he saw her leave the bar and just attacked her from behind because she used to wear headphones all the time and it's thought that he just dragged her into a car assaulted her and then dropped her it was basically a wrong place wrong time situation jeez mia's case was actually the first in the state of washington to be solved by saliva dna wow yeah happily the conviction really helped a lot of her friends and bandmates and family moved forward because they had carried these questions just for, like, so long. Mesquita actually passed away this year in January, January 21st. He was 66, still in prison. And as for the rest of the band, they remain close, but they don't play music together anymore. They have their own families. A couple of them are still in Seattle. and But, yeah, that's Mia's story, and it's just so tragic that she was cut short like that and what an impact that had on the entire scene that she was involved in in Seattle. Yeah. Yeah, that was really sad. Yeah. There's two great albums and, you know, her memory is still alive and she influenced all of the, you know, female punk rockers since her. So you know, her memory's still there. Yeah. And just for reference, I took most of this from a documentary called The Gets, which was released in 2005. I highly recommend it. There's so much great live footage, tons of great live footage, and they were fantastic live. And a lot of her friends share beautiful memories and her family's in it, and it's really beautiful. And I also found a great article on a website. It's called She was an She interviewed the band and uh that helped with this piece
0: here so there yeah you go. well I love you know I love how connected all these bands are like I feel like Seattle during that time it's just it's always good to see like bands that are supporting each other and almost like family and that yeah. just seems to be the like a consistent thread, especially with our two bands links so I I chose Seven Year Bitch solely for the name, but I stayed for the music because it's damn good. (laughs) Seriously. I love them. I like literally, because I've never heard of them until I went, you know, I chose them and then I went and listened to it and I'm like, oh, this is like a perfect mix of punk grunge and you hear the thread of like hardcore too, just in how Celine sings it. So... Um, also, to note, there's not like too much on the internet about them that I could personally find. So it may be a little bit shorter, but also like links you touched on a lot of points as well. That kind of they're kind of one of those things where they had three albums and then it just kind of fizzled around for four years, but still very much worth talking about. So. To talk about their humble beginnings, we're going to start our story with Celine Vigil. Uh, she moved out to Seattle after high school, where she worked at a health food store and met co-worker and future bandmate Valerie Agnew. Um, they first formed a band called Barbie's Dream Car, <laughs> which I love. I like that. It's, it's a great name. Uh, but the basis of that band decided to go and leave to go to Europe. So provided a new opportunity to rebrand themselves. So they recruited a new basis. Her name was Elizabeth Davis. Um, and then Stephanie Sargent, Links she might know a little bit. I think she may have been already in Barbie Dream Car or she may have came in right after them. My sources I'm weren't quite sure. Yeah, my sources weren't really clear on that. But somewhere in that time frame, she came in. And they changed her name to Seven Year Bitch after the Seven Year Itch, the famous Marilyn Monroe film, um, which um, have any of you like seen that film? Links probably has. I've never yeah. had. Links
2: has seen like one every film ever. Yeah. But especially like Marilyn Monroe, right? She was lovely. She
3: plays the girl. They never name her. She's just this. Like, the girl. Mythical, yeah. And
0: he's like obsessed. That's why she doesn't have a name. She's like just the dream girl. right? Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen it. And then I went to go read it and I don't know what I was expecting. But like, yeah, the summary is like this dude has been married for seven years. And like, you know, he thinks for some reason he's irresistible to all ladies. And he's trying to fight this urge to have an affair. And then there's Marilyn Monroe. And so and then he just I don't know. But yeah, it seems interesting for sure. It's good. Yeah, I I do like old movies, but Marilyn Monroe is a blind spot for me, but I'll have to check it out. Um, But yeah, in regards to their name, the band somehow saw a bitch as them trying to, like some of them said like, oh, you're just putting that in there to hate men. And the band's like, no, that's not the case, Um, which I think is a common thread in band history and the right girl movement and all women in music industry. And every woman. Yeah. in <laughs> There's a chain here. <laughs> um, but the band insisted um, in the documentary I watched on YouTube where they're like, bitch is a good word. It means women who don't take any shit and further saying bitch is a compliment. And like I've never spiritually identified with a phrase so strongly up to that point. <laughs> like <laughs> I knew I selected the right band when that was uttered. Um, so anyway, uh, also what's interesting that I think that wasn't in my outline, but Lynx talked about it. Celine wasn't really a singer until Mia Zapata came around and they developed a friendship. And she's like, just interpret it in your own way. What does it sound like to you? And so when you hear her, it's this very like almost it's almost like a Zach De La Rocha thing, Rocha thing where it's like a little bit of talking, a little bit of singing, a little bit of just, ah, uh, like it's just awesome. It's awesome to experience. But their first album was called Sikkim, which was released in October 1st, 1992. Um, I mean, the music's great. I love that. That was the first album I put on and it's awesome. And I love that it's like a good lower quality recording that just sounds like chaos because it reminds me of like the roots of the hardcore scene, which I kind of hail from and just like it's recorded on the audio equivalent of Microsoft Paint. So like like I have no other way to describe it, but that just feels like home to me when I hear that recording quality. Um, It's not a dig on it at all. It makes me feel happy um but they're they cover songs like there's a song called chow down which is about abortion and then they have a song called dead man can't rape which is you know speaks for itself
1: love
0: so. it <laughs> yes yeah, yeah it's dead man can't rape i mean it's like brutal n- song titles
2: they just went for the jugulars it's like
0: 100 i love
2: it so much And I love like when they all got together and they like did the, you know, rock against domestic violence and then like raising money. It's just like these women getting together and the message that they're sending. It's just there's so much more
0: substance to it than 100 percent. I mean, I think like the media trope of pinning women against each other did not work in the right girl movement at all. And it's sad that they chose one band to highlight over the other. And it's a misfortune that I'm now just learning about it. But it's still looking back and knowing those pressures that were there, especially to, you know, make it on MTV, the only source of promotion and, you know, maybe your local newspaper. It's just so encouraging, despite those very tiny avenues of, you know, awareness They still chose to stick together. I love that. I love that so much. Um, So like I mentioned, the album was released in October. It was supposed to be released earlier, but unfortunately, there was a tragedy. Um, Stephanie Sargent passed away shortly after the album was created um, from drugs and alcohol complications, which was really sad. She was only like 23 or something like that. That Sucks. Yeah. Yeah. And then shortly after that album was released, like Lynx mentioned, Mia Zapata, who is for all intents and purposes, their mentor died in 1993. And those two events, especially being so close together. um, I mean, it took the band weeks, understandably to decide even if they were going to continue. But they chose to move on after, you know, having a few weeks to figure it out. Um, And like Lynx mentioned, uh, Valerie was one of the people that helped create Home Alive. Um, Actually, I think she was the founder of it or co-founder at least. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really awesome. Uh, But after, you know, regrouping, they recruited guitarist Rosin Dunn and they went right back into the studio. Their second album is called Viva Zapata which was released Aww. on June 28th, 1994, you know, sound wise, definitely better recording quality, which, you know, makes me a little sad, but that's all right. It's for Zapata. It's worth it. It's for
2: Zapata. For Zapata.
0: You know, it's definitely that really awesome punk sound. They have that same flow and style, which I think is great, but it's a little bit different because they're processing their grief of both Mia and Stephanie. And one of the songs talks about taking like justice into their own hands against me as killer. Like I think Link She did like definitely bring into light like how frustrating it was and no one could figure out who this person was that did this. Yeah. But yeah, so they're writing this vigilante vigilante justice song and they have a lyric that says, Does society have justice for you? If not, I do and it's just very mm-hmm. like Wow poof, Like straight to the point. So after this album is released, it gets them a little bit on the map and Atlantic Records. It sounds like they were shopping around the grunge scene. For sure. From what I'm seeing, But they come and tap them on the shoulder. Um, now, there's this article I want to shout out. It was one of the only articles I could find. It was from 1994 from the L.A. Times about the band. And I think there's something really interesting that Celine Vigil says that for them they don't personally identify with the rock a girl movement but wiki categorizes them in that scene and i think that's fair to say but in their view they said they weren't being political um that they just had issues that affected you know their day-to-day life which was abortion and rape which i think is super interesting and i can't quite wrap my head around it because like is it kind of is it kind of like
2: when a very clear feminist doesn't want to be identified yeah, as a feminist? Yeah, that's kind of like
0: Well, I think like during that time too, I don't you know, I think it's hard for me to really wrap my head around it because today, especially in the states, those are political issues. They are unfortunately, Absolutely. unfortunately, they are on the political lines. And for them, they saw it as day-to-day issues. So riot girl yes is very political but i don't think they knew how political they actually were retroactively so i still categorize them in that category as far as their sound goes they like i said there was this interview i found on youtube where they're in germany and they're playing around in a guitar shop which is really fun it was really like authentic and down to earth Um, And they were asking like how they would describe their sound. And they said that's supposedly like Soundgarden coins the term grunge because someone asked them to describe their sound. And they said, I don't know. We're kind of grungy. And them being from Seattle, you know, everyone assumes they're grunge. And the band's like, no, we're kind of punch. We're punk plus grunge. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Punch. Yeah. Um, Also. I did not know this, but Brad Wilk from Rage Against the Machine was married to Celine Vigil for a little bit, which I think is pretty cool because she mentioned she's getting married. And I'm like, oh, let me go see who she married. And it was Brad Wilk, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. So their third and last album was called Gato Negro, which is black cat in Spanish. It was released on March 12th, 1996 on Atlantic Records. Their singles from that album were The History of My Future, 24, 900 miles per hour, and Misunderstood, spelled M-I-S-S. Unfortunately, after this album, the band begins to fizzle out from there. What causes this, just kind of briefly, like three things, like one, the album didn't really perform well, so Atlantic let them go. And it's 1996, so grunge is on the way out anyway around that time. Number two, they were working on a fourth album at the time, but the band just, like, moved to far in, like, different locations, and that just really put a damper on things. And um, the third thing is Royzen uh, Dunn left the band, and she was replaced by a friend and engineer, Lisa Faye Beattie. But it just never helps when, I'm sorry, band members leave. Like, they tend to be make it or break it moments. But yeah, after the band broke up, some went and started their own projects. Um, Some went into filmography. But yeah, they only had a seven-year career, which is funny because they're called Seven Year Bitch. I'm now just catching (laughs) the irony of that. That's (laughs) (laughs) amazing. It seemed short, but at the same time, like they really did contribute to the Riot Girl movement and that really cool scene during that time. So that is Seven Year Bitch. Awesome. I wanted to say quickly before
3: we move on that the Gits, because Stephanie died before Mia, Mm -hmm. they actually have a song called Seaweed that's about Stephanie. And as you mentioned, there's Viva Zapata and the M.I.A. song about Mia. So they definitely both uh, paid tribute to each other. And if you haven't seen the Drew Barrymore 1995 classic Mad Love... There's a great scene in it where uh, they go on a date to see Seven Year Bitch and what a, date. a scratch,
2: right? Because like, sorry, what movie is that? Mad Love. I haven't seen it
3: with either. Chris O'Donnell and Drew Barrymore. That was an in interesting.
0: I know this isn't a filmography podcast, but this just brings up a little tidbit in my head. The '90s were interesting for films and highlighting rock bands. Like, so you had that. And then you had uh, Ace Ventura had uh, Megadeth, I think. I don't know. Is it, I think it's Megadeth. I'm not sure. But like this metal scene on there. And like, I just feel like that wouldn't be the case today. Which is it's sad. true. Well, but
2: Lynx and I have been watching a lot of 90s movies lately and discussing them. And yeah, music is a huge part of those films for sure. Yeah.
3: There's another great band who we could have been a part of this but maybe for another time L7 Mm -hmm. that I adore and they are featured in John Waters Serial Mom like a full scene of them performing as well and everything so yeah you're right like they really did end like singles you have Soundgarden in that you have Alice in Chains in that they really did have like a lot of band performances in some great 90s films
0: yeah It it was awesome. I mean, I think Wayne's World definitely helped that because that was released like, oh, it had to be like early 90s, like. Early 92?
3: Yeah, 92,
0: right around there. But I always found that interesting looking back, like that doesn't happen as much as it is. It probably died off, honestly, with School of Rock. I feel like that was the last time we saw like rock being prominent in a film like that.
3: Well, it's fun. It's fun getting to look back too, and like I love watching those movies. Like Shanti said, we've been like having great nostalgia, and it's cool to get both music and the film aspect in both. Yeah. yeah. And even
2: though you're saying like it's not exactly like it's not a film podcast, like it all does kind of click into each other. Sure. Yeah. Especially especially when you've got a filmmaker who's a huge music buff, mm-hmm. you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: All right. So now we're gonna jump
1: into the early '90s and talk about what happens when two folk singers join the grunge grunge scene with Veruca Salt, who Sting introduced on SNL as Veronica Salt. No, did he really? Yes, he did. Uh, Uh, uh,
0: An Adele Dazeem moment before its time.
1: Yes. (laughs) Veronica? Yeah, he called them Veronica Salt, but they're Veruca Salt. But he did this on live TV on SNL in like 94. That's unfortunate. Which I thought was hilarious, so I had to put it in here. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) Um, So obviously they're named after Veruca Salt, the character in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I think it's interesting that a lot of these bands drew their names from, like, other pop culture references. Yeah. And they were founded in 1992 in Chicago by Louise Post, who played guitar and did vocals, and Nina Gordon, who also played guitar and did vocals. We love a (laughs) multi-talented duo. Mm -hmm. And the two of them actually, they did, like, the coffee shop scene in Chicago for a while with folk songs, just, like, writing and playing and writing and playing for, like, six months or so. And then they were like, we have enough material, let's make a band. So they put an ad in the paper to try to get an all-female rhythm section, and they did not get an (laughs) all-female rhythm section. (laughs) They end up getting Nina's brother, Jim Shapiro, on drums, and a guy named Steve Lack on bass. And keeping with the punk tradition, Jim did not know how to play drums. They were just like, you're our drummer now. Have fun. (laughs) Please learn the drums. So, needless to say, that stressed him out, which is fair. And they were only together for, like, I want to say two months before they got signed to a label and the label they got signed to were was Minty Fresh Records.
0: Yes. Which I just
1: love the name of them They're How like a small very clean.
2: Label. How long yes. did that record last or record label last? We'll get there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or
1: not, we will get there. And so the owner of Fr- Minty Fresh Records found them because he was in charge of booking up an arts festival in Chicago. And like literally two days before the festival, a bunch of bands dropped out, mm-hmm. and so uh, Louise heard about this, and she like ran across the entirety of Chicago to his office to drop off their demo tape, and he was like, "Ah, eh, you guys sound like you know what you're doing." <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and so, amazing. They played the festival, and they got a record deal out of it, so it all worked out. And keeping up with their fast-paced life, six months later, they dropped their debut album. Whoa! And That's this, crazy!
3: That's the fast. Story of,
1: yeah, the story of how this happened is also crazy. So the owner, Jim Powers, who loved their demo, he, I guess, had a lot of money from his indie record label or from some other venture in his life, and he had a producer friend named Brad Wood, and Jim gave Brad some money to help renovate his recording studio. And the deal was that Jim would give him the money, but Brad had to hold a spot in his studio to either record seven singles for the label like across a bunch of bands or to do 14 songs for one band that he really liked. And so he decided to use all 14 credits on Veruca Salt, Hell yeah. which is an album. But let's not forget that Jim does not know how to play the drums.
3: <laughs> oh,
0: no. oh, that's true. <laughs> well, you better learn.
2: I, had, I did forget, honestly. He's very stressed out by this whole ordeal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is the most he's... punk thing I've ever heard. Like, we got a record deal, buddy, you got to learn the drums now.
1: He's panicking. I don't, I would be panicking too if I had only picked up drumsticks two months prior. So he's, he's just there, he's hanging out, learning how to play the drums. But luckily, they, he has to do any songwriting. He just has to show up and play the drums in the record because Nina and Louise are doing all the writing. And they would actually like, Write their song separately and then come together and work on the final arrangement. And then, if whoever wrote the song would sing the lead vocals, so they kind of like split them almost 50 50. Um, they tried really hard to keep it balanced between the two. And they actually, despite Jim being stressed out not knowing how to play the drums, they really enjoyed. This process because like they were living the dream they had a record mm-hmm. deal after six months uh, they're making their album they had zero expectations because no one knew who they were and so they make this album and they release their first single which is uh, a double-sided see there and all hail me that drops in 1994 and they explode out of nowhere they immediately become Like, the hot song on all the alternative radio stations in the country. They're huge in the Chicago music scene. Like, they get so big so fast that they open for Hole on their tour before their album's even out. (laughs) They just have a single. (sighs) And so later that year, they drop their full-length album, American Thighs, which is a great album name. So good. (laughs) And despite being, like, an underground punk band, the album did really well commercially. Like it, it hit gold status. It actually spent 23 weeks straight on the Billboard charts, which is crazy for an underground indie label like that. And in an article in 2014, the music magazine Paste listed Seether as number 10 and All Haley as number 39 on the 50 greatest grunge songs of all time.
0: Wow. wow.
1: So they, their first single got two spots on this list. And They leave Minty fresh in the dust because they get enough attention to sign to Geffen. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. You can sound like you're a toothpaste label or you can go with a real label. So in 1996, they release an EP on Geffen, which is called Blow It Out Your Ass, which I don't have any (laughs) good information to share. I just wanted to share the name of it. And that's to tie the people over until their second album, which is called Eight Arms to Hold You, which has the coolest album art of an octopus on it. I love it. Uh, that comes out in 1997. Their lead single off that album is Volcano Girls. And in order to get exposure, they make it the opening theme to like this teen movie called Jawbreaker that didn't... Which is so good. <laughs> oh, she's beating on so But it got them publicity. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen it.
2: I don't I've know. never heard You're of it. You're not being ironic? Oh, I thought you were like making a joke. Like, <laughs> this little old movie, have you heard of it? Jawbreaker? Because it's, cl- it's like a cult classic, right? It
3: is now, yeah, for sure. Really? I guess, yeah, it didn't do
2: like oh, yeah. big at the
3: box office, but yeah. No. Oh, it's got like Rose McGowan, Ooh. even Marilyn Manson, because she was with him at the time, is in it for a weird thing the
0: soundtrack
2: is so good Mm -hmm. so good
0: huh i'm gonna check it out i recommend
2: yeah i follow a lot of like 90s instagram meme accounts and Mm jawbreaker is always all over it and people are just like
0: iconic oh i need to watch it i love i love good cult classic films
3: it's good it's like it's very 90s the costumes and the set pieces and rose mcgowan's just like perfect as like the best villain
1: ever like
3: oh that's
0: great
1: i'll have to check it out after after reading about it yeah but let's go back to our buddy jim who's still not good at guitar (laughs) or at drums uh after they record this album he's like you know what I've had enough. I still don't know how to play these things. I quit. <laughs> so we have to find a new a new drummer. Well, to be fair, like he kinda only filled in because they were it was his sister
0: and he was doing something nice. And Literally sounds live.
1: like something my brother would do. <laughs> yeah. I
0: mean, did he even try the bass? <laughs> no, they had a bassist. He knew what he was doing. <laughs> but still, like I feel like you're doing a disservice by putting someone on drums that they're not Rhythmically inclined Bass is like he was there Hit four notes And you're good
1: Yeah so. um, It didn't get any better When they started Playing live shows And people started Criticizing him <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> Poor guy Poor dude uh, So they end up replacing, it, replacing him With a guy named Stacy Jones And so they start To work on their Third album But things come To a screeching halt Because Nina and Louise Get in a fight I don't know but here's the thing, we don't know what they thought about. Like mm. supposedly, like inside sources have said that it's one of the greatest rock operas that would rival Fleetwood Mac. But no one knows what it is. Oh, I like a mystery. I could I dug and dug and dug. I dug for like rumors. I couldn't find any good like even substantial rumors. So
0: why We're does gonna, it, gonna say, why does it bother me that I now want to know what it is?
3: Uh, I mean, Hopefully one of them writes a memoir or something.
1: Right. Cause exactly. I want I want the inside story because it had to have been good because they were at the top of their career and yeah. had like part of a third album done. And then they're just like, we're done. We're not talking to each other. Oh, geez. It's over. Um, So they, they did have a fight, but also part of the reason for them breaking up was just. As we talked about, grunge was fading. They, were, they came in really late to the scene. Like They mm-hmm. didn't form until 1992. And we're in 1998-ish when they're doing this. So things have changed. Uh, so in this article that I read, um, spoiler, they're going to reunite later in life. <laughs> this was written about the reunion. And uh, Nina Gordon said, our favorite thing in the whole world was to sing together sing harmonies, and kick on our distortion pedals. But the industry, the expectations, and all of that stuff is what ate away at our trust and our bond. So, thanks, music industry. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. uh, so poor Louise is left on her lonesome because Nina just quits the band, and she goes off and does her own like solo career. And most of the support that Geffen was giving them got fired because at the same time all this is happening, Universal and Polygram merge, And they just fire their original support staff. And so it's literally just like, Louise, sitting here. And so she goes, you know what? I'm going to go make my own record label. So she leaves and founds Velveteen Records, all on her own. Yay! Go, Louise. Like I said, Nina is doing her own solo thing. She gets signed to Warner Brothers. And Nina's first single, which was Tonight and the Rest of My Life, actually did really well on radio. And... Got picked up by a lot of movies in the early 2000s. It's in The Notebook and in Chocolate. Oh. Yeah. Uh, but her album did not do good. It actually was like a critical flop. It only peaked at 123 and then no one paid her any more attention after that single. That's sad. Which is kind of sad. But meanwhile, um, Nina's back over at her own record label now and she gets a new band, uh, Jimmy Madla and Suzanne Sokol on drums and bass guitar. But things don't work out super great for them. Suzanne leaves really, really fast, um, like, six months later. She's replaced by Gina Crosley. Louise and Gina try to make a supergroup with Courtney Love. Mm-hmm. But mm. that doesn't work out because it's 2000 and no one wants to hear that anymore. Yeah. Um, and so she manages to, like, scrounge enough of a consistent band to make the album Resolver. Which is an album that's like super emotionally processing because she's Nina's proce- or Louise is processing Nina leaving the band and her like dreams being crushed, but also her breakup with Dave Grohl. Ooh, yeah.
2: Mm. So
1: she's got a lot happening. Uh, so Nina and Dave dated for a little while in the late '90s, and she Dave does has backing vocals on Everlong, right? Yeah, that's that was yeah. my next point. Okay.
0: Oh.
1: He wrote the song Everlong about her, and she does the backing vocals on it. Nice. Which were recorded over the phone on a long-distance phone call from Chicago to L.A. And it sounds that way. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that that technology existed in 1996, but it did. (laughs) So cool. Um, Following their breakup, their breakup was kind of messy because Dave Grohl cheated on her with Winona Ryder. Yeah, like very publicly.
0: <laughs> Dave <Yep. laughs> and um, I mean, dumb. it's
1: Winona Ryder. That's hard to. I I feel for Louise, but
0: yeah,
3: yeah. One of that's the
1: song, point. one of the lyrics on the album is uh, in the song "Disconnected." She writes the lyrics. It's kind of scary when your lover leaves you for a movie star.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> Oof.
1: Uh, but don't worry too much about her feelings because in 2006 she was said. It was a private relationship. It got so much publicity. We didn't mean for it to happen, but we're friends now. So That's good. It's all all made up and all water under the bridge. Um, And then things were kind of quiet for a couple years, but kind of like under the radar, Nina and Louise reconciled, but decided that they were not ready to work creatively together like that was going to be a big step in their their healing process and so they just like were friends from a distance they didn't even meet up in person for like five more years um which is convenient because in 2005 louise's band left her yet again Mm. so she's just left to try to she's still trying to scrounge up like some touring musicians that she's worked with and That like hodgepodge band makes an album, but it doesn't really go anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so finally in 2012, shoot, they they were just like, you know what, we're done. Veruca Salt is over. We're taking an indefinite hiatus. See y'all later. But then, about like a year later, on March 15th, 2013, they announced the reunion of the original lineup. Like, Jim on drums and everything.
0: Yeah. yeah, Jim. Pulling him out of retirement. <laughs> Finally learned. <laughs> no, he didn't. He the thing. No, he didn't. He didn't. <laughs> he hasn't to touched drums since he left. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Don't worry. This is 2013. Just put a drum pad on automatically. No one will know the difference.
1: It literally says this reunion marked the first time that Jim would play drums since 1997. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so they announced this reunion over Facebook with the status For now, let's just say this The hatchet's buried and axes are exhumed So everything is made up, water under the bridge um, And they have put together two albums since then and Including the album in 2015 called Ghost Notes Which is their story of how they broke up and got back together So very cathartic the article that i read was about that and they were like it was really good to just like work out our shit through the music i saw that tour Mm -hmm. and they were awesome live i had so
3: much fun and i was so happy to they're the only band out of these four that i've got to see live and i was so happy to cross them off my list because i never thought i would get a chance because yeah they broke up and everything so yeah yeah that's awesome And they're both, like, super babes, too. Like, they still look so good. They still sound so good. They have
1: not aged one bit. Right?
0: I only hope that for myself, but I know that's not going to happen. (laughs) So I'm going to get tattooed everywhere, and then I'm just badass. and old that's right
2: oh well that was so that was awesome I, I learned so much and I, I needed a good laugh so thanks everyone
3: i loved these bands i had no idea about a lot of this so that was great that's yeah. why
0: i love these episodes when we do crossovers with you guys because they're always fun and we're all <laughs> laughing and we're hanging out even though we're like thousand miles away i don't know how far toronto is but that's my estimate it's far yeah so, somewhere around there but um Yeah, it's always a good time, and I'm always learning things that are just not on my radar.
3: Yeah, we'll have to think of a
2: next theme that we can
0: do in the fall. Absolutely.
2: All right, She Will Rock You, you want to drop your socials? pretty much She Will Rock You podcast
1: across everything. Uh, On Twitter, it is She Will Rock, the letter U, pod, because of the character limit, but Everywhere else, she will rock you podcast, or you can visit our website, she will you Be like
2: me and buy some of their merch.
0: Yes, you have great merch; it's so cute. Oh, thank you. And can you guys can you guys drop your socials? Yeah,
3: we got ours it's just like yours, kinda of across the board. Muses pod.
2: You can find us on all the socials. Instagram is Muses Podcast. Yeah, it's great. You know, we don't need to teach anybody like how to Google and search these days. It's easy. You got it. We're there. Email us at musespod at gmail dot com and Tell us what you like about us. Nice comments only. And leave a review for both (laughs) podcasts while you're there.
0: They also have incredible merch, and I'm a proud owner of a Yellow Muses shirt that I almost wore, (laughs) but I went with Bucky. Ah, Bucky. Love Um, it. My boy. My boy. That's so nineties. Oh, it says gnarly on the back too. I think that's why I subconsciously <laughs> chose it, because it's a nineties design mm-hmm. shirt. Yeah. And I don't think For my sure. brain was aware of what I was doing, but
2: my my t-shirt says um if you have less than two pools, you're poor.
0: <laughs> oh, poor. <that's> amazing. <laughs>
2: Guilty. <laughs> go ahead and I love and that plug an entirely different thing, which is is on a hiatus right now anyways but it's a twitch stream that i watch on fridays called hot and rich and it's just like kind of making fun of celebrities who are hot and rich that's incredible
0: i love that
2: thank you so much guys it was so nice to see you it's like made my day truly
1: for listening be sure to leave us a review on apple Podcasts if you enjoyed the show special thanks to death of fawn for our intro riff you can visit our website at Shioraku.com. there you can find links to our socials the show notes and you can reach out to us and contact us and remember don't do drugs